Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. Well, we're going to um, open the Word of God tonight. We're starting a new series on discipleship, it's personal, and we're working through the book of 2 Timothy. You know, we've gotten all those pesky guest speakers out of the way with their life-transforming messages, and now we're ready to work through a book of the Bible. Can anyone say amen? Amen. Would you grab your Bible with me tonight, whether you've got a paper one, whether you're old school, or whether you've got it on your phone, and uh, if you didn't bring it because you know that it usually appears on the screen, that's all right. You can still join in with this. This is something we used to do years ago, and uh, and that's done uh, um, across the world. I want you to say after me, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. My heart is open. My mind is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, discipleship, uh, Jesus really defines it in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where he says, If any of you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If anyone would be my disciple, they must put aside their own ways, take up my ways, and follow after my ways. That's what he says. And so in order to be a disciple, there is firstly that turning away from our own ways. If we want to receive the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that is awesome and the best thing we can do with our lives. But if we want to be a disciple, we have to actually turn away from what we've been doing, lay that down, pick up Jesus' cross and follow after him. That's his desire for our life. If you're like me, you might see some disciples and, uh, and you kind of have um, a bit of a reaction or an internal tension about them. And maybe you'll be able to place yourself with these people or place yourself with me as an observer. But when I see a disciple, I see some people who for discipleship, it's just easy. Denying themselves is so easy. They fast, they pray, they, they, they spend all their time reading the Word of God. It's just this natural kind of thing for them. Do you know anyone like that? And, uh, you know, they're probably really great at exercise and other disciplines as well. So, frankly, they're just annoying. Um, But but for those people, they're awesome. They're they're doing the work of God, and it seems to come so easy for them. Now, for some of those people, definitely not all, but for some of those people, I can see that they've got the works, but actually it seems like, yeah, they've got the works, that actually there's this works-driven kind of nature to them that they, they, they like ticking the boxes. They like saying, yes, I've done that. And sometimes people can take a certain pride in that. And sometimes people who are those strong, evident disciples of Jesus on the outward, it can put us a bit off and, and make us think that we're not good enough. Does anyone else, has anyone, can it, no? Okay, great. Um, I got one nod, I'm thankful for you, Chris, over there. Sometimes we can compare ourselves, which is never wise, and we feel like we're not matching up. Um, other people, discipleship is like an optional extra. They come to church, but nothing about their life actually changes. It's like this, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus, but, but the outworking of that hasn't quite happened yet. Now, what I find about these people is there's no satisfaction. They can't get no satisfaction. And uh, it seems like for them, 
that, that they can't be satisfied because they've got just enough of Jesus, just enough of the Holy Spirit, that when they sin or when they do something wrong or where they go their own way or follow after their own desires, it's enough to annoy them, but not enough to change them. It's enough to give them attention that they didn't feel before, but it's not enough to change them. And not only that, it's not only not satisfying to them, it's not satisfying to the people around them because, because they're acting one way and saying another. So there's no satisfaction either way for anyone there. There's other people who, for discipleship, they believe the church is wholly and solely responsible for their discipleship. If they're not growing, it's the church's fault. The messages aren't deep enough. They, they, they take no responsibility for the discipleship of their own life. And they say that, you know, the church should have the responsibility. I think that we'd all agree that if discipleship is related to discipline, then we live in a world that is largely void of discipline. We, we, we find it in the home where an older generation would say, well, that kid just needs a good flogging. And whether you agree with that or not, we do acknowledge that discipline has been on the decline in the family home. We know it's true of the school system where teachers are increasingly frustrated with the inability to be able to outwork discipline for the students. And if they try, then they don't get backed up by their principals. We know that that is the case in a lot of our school systems. We know it's the case in health, as there's a greater increase of, of non-disciplined health-related issues, like obesity and, and like heart disease and things that could be simply changed if we just have a bit of discipline with the way that we eat, and I'm the first to put my hand up there. It's like because we see no imminent threat that we're not forced into that disciplinary attitude. It's like because there's no common enemy. You know, for the longest time, our, our, our nation, they had a common enemy that they had to come into order and rally together and get into unity around and be disciplined because there was a common enemy that they were facing. And then the other part of it is, and, and this is a brilliant and beautiful part, is that we've walked more and more into grace and freedom, but somewhere along the lines, perhaps discipline has been dropped off the back there that actually we don't have those church discipline structures that used to drive behaviour either underground or drive us out of church or just kind of nullify it all and, and, and keep everyone really in a controlled structure. That's not there, and for that I say praise God. But the discipline maybe of our own lives and, and that outworking seems to have been lost. Does anyone identify with any of what I'm saying tonight? So we're going to 2 Timothy because here is a man who is a disciple. He's a disciple first of Jesus Christ, but secondly, he's a disciple of a man called Paul. And he is such a brilliant disciple that Paul is able to write him this kind of letter. And this is a true discipleship because true discipleship is born of the Spirit. True discipleship starts when the Holy Spirit awakens something in us. True discipleship can't come of rules. It can't come of external restrictions or anything like that. It needs to be born internally and outworked from the inside out. That's true of Timothy. And what we'll see tonight is that there's his part and there's our part. And so we're going to go to, to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. And I want you to understand that tonight, these are the last words of Paul. From here, Paul goes to... He's in prison, but this is the last letter he writes before he goes to his death. 
And he's not writing to a whole group of people, he's writing to one person, Timothy. So we get his last words here, his unedited last words to a person that he loves. So if I were to write to the church as my last address, when I had my melanoma, I thought about this. (laughs) I was a little bit, you know, dramatic. But I had kind of my funeral worked out. It was going to be hilarious. And... um, but I had like some videos that I would have, you know, spoken. I would have spoken to the church and encouraged you all in your faith. But I can tell you that the, the, the videos that I did for my husband and the videos that I did for my children would have been vastly different than the videos that I did for the whole church. They would have been something so much more intimate and so much more heartfelt. Well, what we have here is a man's last words to someone that he considered family. So verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul always starts his letters with who he is in Jesus Christ. He never shies away from the authority that he carries by the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We all carry an authority that we should never shy away from. We should always carry it with confidence and with stature. And that's what Paul does. He always starts his letters there. He doesn't leave it there. He moves into the promise of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He says who he is. And he talks about the promise of God. Now, it's very easy to talk about who we want to be. For example, Nath might say, well, by the grace of God, I'm a multi-millionaire. I confess that that I am a multimillionaire by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's great, Nath, but, and maybe you will be, but not yet. You're not there yet. I'm sorry, you just looked down and looked really sad. <laughs> I just, I don't know if you realize it. It's just not happening. <laughs> but, you know, where are you right now? What's the season that you're in? You know, I look at Chrissy, a shop owner, a business owner, and uh, she's an amazing disciple of Jesus Christ. I've known her basically all my life, I think. But Chrissy right now is a, a business owner. She's a mum who's largely at home and, and her husband is away a lot. And so she's a mum and has the calling of a mother on her life as well, whether she wants it or not. You had those kids. <laughs> so do you know who you are right now by the grace of God? It's great to know who you want to be, but do you know who you are right now? Paul's declaring who he is right now. Don't shy away from who you are, even if it's not where you want to be yet. Own, you can only get to where you want to be if you recognize where you are right now. So I wonder if you could acknowledge and, and, and realize where you are right now and that actually you're in the season that you're in for a purpose and it's not just to be whittled away or wild away or wished away, it's for a purpose. Paul knew the season that he was in. Then he keeps going. He says, to Timothy, my dear son. To Timothy, my dear son. You know, Timothy's actually not his son. They meet in Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to read, we're going to go there for a moment tonight, Acts chapter 16. We're only going to get as far as we get. I'm not going to preach long. I'm just going to preach to the time. And uh, we'll just get as far as we can get tonight. In Acts chapter 16, we, we hear about the meeting of Paul and Timothy. It says, he came to Derb, and then to Lystra, where a di- this is Paul, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews. Whoa, that just escalated. Fellas, the lesson here is do not let anyone speak well of you to Paul, okay? Because something happens here. It says, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. That's hectic. 
I don't care who you are, that is hectic, that, that the brothers are speaking well of this man of God, this disciple, and so Paul takes him along, performs a medical procedure, and then they keep going on their journey. What's the decision that they're, that they're proclaiming to the other believers? What, is, what, what, what was so necessary that he had to undergo this medical treatment in order to deliver this message? Let's look at it. The page before in Acts chapter 15, you see Paul has been ministering to all the Gentiles. And then some Jews have risen up and said, well, hang on, if, the, if they're going to be believers like we are, there's some things that they need to adhere to. And it's here on the screen. It says, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And Paul begins to tell them about everything that's happening among the Gentiles and about how the Holy Spirit's being poured out just as it is among the Jews. And Paul says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus they are saved just as we are. So nothing else, no external requirement. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then they have a discussion about it and, and they talk it through and there's lots of noise and lots of angst and lots of tension in the room and eventually James the brother of Jesus stands up and he makes a proclamation he says this is my decision guys and you know what he is a devout Jew he is the brother of Jesus he he has it down and this is his judgment it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food oops food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Three things he gives to them. Not one of them which is being circumcised. So the decision that, that, that Timothy and Paul need to go around and tell the, the Gentile believers is, hey guys, good news, you don't need to undergo that medical treatment that we talked about. There's no chop-chop here. And yet, in order... For Timothy to go and tell that to the Gentiles, he himself undergoes that treatment. What on earth? Is Paul a sadist to make him do this? Absolutely not. Paul is an amazing man of God. You see, what Timothy realizes is that it's not about him. And he says, if there's anything that stands in the way from me being received and my message being received about the Lord Jesus Christ, let's deal with it right now. Let me tell you. I feel good when I go out to dinner with Lee and Vicky. See, I enjoy a glass of wine, and Lee and Vicky do not. And so because of their conscience, I decide not to have wine when I'm eating dinner with them. And I feel so good about myself. The waitress comes over and she says, would any of you like anything to drink? And I'm like, oh, yes, I'd like a... I say, Lee and Vicky, oh, no, thank you, I'll just have water. Because I'm so holy, I'm such a great disciple of Jesus that I consider their conscience... And, and, you know, oh, no, no, thank you, I'll just have water. I don't, I don't want to offend these guys. <laughs> Go, Brian, high-five yourself. This guy undergoes an unnecessary medical procedure in order to ensure that no one's conscience is affected. He doesn't care who it's, he doesn't care about himself whatsoever. He cares about God, he cares about his cause, and he cares about the people he loves. And he says, it doesn't matter about me, it matters more about them. Because discipleship, discipleship asks what do I need to do to best serve? What is required of me to best serve others? That's what personal discipleship asks. It doesn't insist on my rights and what do I need. It says, what do I need to do? What's required of me to best serve? Glass of water. Let's have a glass of water. Good one, Bron. Come on. Timothy says, give me the knife. <laughs> I'll do this. You see, that's what makes him a dear son. 
That's the kind of kid that gets the attention of God, who says, it doesn't matter about me or my rights. I want to do whatever it takes to best serve the people around me. You see, people were vastly offended at people preaching the gospel who weren't circumcised, the Jewish believers. And so Timothy just says, I'll do whatever I need to do because it's not about me. It's about God, his cause, and the people he loves. Verse 2, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from the God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. Three beautiful words on their own, but profound and incredible coming out of the mouth of Paul. In his first letter to Timothy, he, he expounds on the grace and the mercy and the love of faith of Jesus Christ. To him, he says, who is a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He says, the grace and the mercy and the love and the faith that's been shown to me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. You see, Paul was a guy who killed Christians. He says of himself that he breathed out, or the Acts says that he breathed out murderous threats against Christians. This guy was a fanatic jihadist. He's the kind of person that we read about on the news. And, and he, he is a guy who, who, who needed the grace and the mercy and the love and the faith of Jesus Christ in order to sleep at night. Not only that, Paul is an incredibly humble man. Yeah, sure, he's got all the um, kudos and the, and the um, what's that word that starts with P? Pedigree of a, of a Jewish rabbi. But he turns it all aside. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Even though I've got all this knowledge and they just were fishermen, I'm the least of all the apostles. And then 10 years later, he writes in the book of Ephesians and says, well, actually, I'm the least of all the saints, of all the Christians that you know, of all the believers that you know, I'm the least of all of them. And then we get to 2 Timothy five years later and he says, of about all the sinners that Jesus Christ can reconcile, he says, I'm the worst. So he goes from being the least of all the apostles to the least of all the saints to the worst of all sinners. Paul is on this journey of humility, causing him to grow and fall further and further into the grace and the mercy and the peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's here in prison. He's got a lot of time to think. And I wonder if the stoning of Stephen, where he stood by and held all the jackets and they lay their jackets before him as they killed a man of God, I wonder if that occurred to his mind and played over and over as he sees a man die, as he sees women and children and, and, and men ripped from their homes to be put into jail because they're believers in Jesus Christ. That stuff would have messed with his head. And so he needed the grace and the mercy and the peace from the God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, more than anyone else. And you see, personal discipleship says, I can't be disqualified because I was never qualified in the first place. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I'll mess up or, you know, miss, I'll, I'll, I'll end my personal streak on you version and it'll say you have not read the bible for 15 days well thanks for telling me you version how about i did not come to condemn the world but to save it but <laughs> but whatever it is whatever it might be i look at someone who's fasting and praying all the time and, or i look at a way that i i spoke harshly to daz or or, or you know I, I i ignored the kids when i was on my phone and and, and i think oh when am i ever going to get it right well should i even be up here preaching this stuff well yes because I was never qualified in the first place. So how can I be disqualified? The only person that qualified me was Jesus and what he did on the cross. So what I do doesn't disqualify me, and you're the same. If you're thinking, you know, I'm not doing this right, I'm not living it out, I'm not getting it right, I, I may as well just give up. Forget that thought, that thought's from the enemy, because you were never qualified in the first place, so you can't be disqualified. Verse 3, 
I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Just two side notes here. How often do you thank God intentionally? How often do you make it an intentional practice to thank God for the things in your life? How often do you constantly remember people in your prayers? They're just side notes. I want to focus in on with a clear conscience. Why did Paul have a clear conscience? Is it because he never sinned? No, that's definitely not the case. But he was trying to live uprightly before the Lord. He, it was his intention to live uprightly before the Lord. You see, when you get it wrong, that's very different to intentionally doing wrong. We all get it wrong. But our intention, if our intention is to live uprightly before the Lord, then, then our conscience can be clear because we can find mercy in our time of need as we boldly approach the throne room of grace. But if our intention is just to do whatever, uh, then we can't have a clear conscience. Uh, that, that actually, God gave us our conscience and he wires us up and then gives us his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. Not to condemn us, but to convict us of sin. So if we want to say, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian and then do whatever we want, that's actually not living as a disciple. I remember um, when I was 14 years old, I'd probably put this day down as the day I got serious as a disciple. I'd received salvation before that. I'd been baptized. I'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But this was the day that I started being a true follower of Jesus Christ. I was uh, at the projection. Who remembers the projection? Overhead projector. I remember in Tamworth, Chrissy's uncle saw a fly on the overhead projector once and slammed it. And so the guts of the fly were projected onto the screen. But fortunately, he fixed it by spinning into his hanky and rubbing that across which was also projected onto the screen. It's <laughs> a free story for you. And, uh, but I was in Cowra doing the overhead projector, living however I wanted through the week and coming to church and being the good girl that did the projector for all the saints in Cowra. And uh, I was receiving communion, got handed the bread, got handed the cup, and was all of a sudden felt this overwhelming emotion that the way that I was living made God sad. I didn't ask for that emotion. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was probably thinking about the book that I was going to get to as soon as the message started. But I had this overwhelming emotion that the way I was living was making God sad. And, and you know, I don't believe he's, like, disappointed. He's not like, chuck you away or anything like that. It's just this, like, that's not what I've got intended for you. I've got a full life for you. I've got a rich life for you if you'll just follow after me. But I was living in a way that made him sad and, and a desire welled up within me to actually live in a way that he was pleased with. And it took me, but, but from that day, that was my desire. Whether or not I lived up to it was a day-by-day thing, but that was my desire from that day. So that's what Paul's talking about, a desire to live uprightly before the Lord, a desire to live with a clear conscience before him. So personal discipleship declares, I intend to live the way that God wants me to because he is Lord. I love that last week with Alan Meyer. He is Lord. He's not just a saviour. He is Lord. So I intend to live the way God wants me to. That's what personal discipleship says. Verse 4 says this. It says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. It's his son in the faith that he loves. I don't know, boys, how you feel about this, that Timothy was crying because he didn't get to see his dad. I, I, I don't know, but what this speaks to me is that, that God wants us to have these deep bonds of friendship and relationship in the body of Christ. And I love the thought of that. I love, and I, and I believe it's in the Aussie psyche as well, this sense of mateship, where the people that you would go to the trenches with 
And I believe that God wants that for us in the body of Christ. People that we can rely upon, people that we can depend upon. Who's ever lost someone like that and felt that deep sense of loss in your life? Well, God desires for us to have it and, and, and we can't always control it. We can just trust him for it, that it'll come. But it is, he, he, he installs those kind of friendships. I may be filled with deep joy. Verse five. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, then you are mandated to leave behind what has been given to you. It is on us to imbue that, (laughs) not a word, something that into the next generation. whatever you all said and instill yeah sure not the word I thought but I love it um yeah it's it's something yeah sure okay so in 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 that into the next generation and now okay I'll text you all later with the word that it is um but Jazz knows this. I do this all the time. I'll in the car just quickly Google it. I bet it's a word. I know it. Um, okay, back to this. Um, yeah, give it to the next generation. If you're a, 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 if you can pray, pray for the next generation. If you can, if you've got anything in you of faith, it's up to you to give it to the next generation. It's not up to you if they receive it or not. It's just up to you to give it. And you know what? I hear people kind of get. Uh, a bit upset as they compare. Again, it's not wise to compare. And they say, well, my parents weren't Christians like your parents were Christians. You had a praying grandparent. I didn't have a praying grandparent. Don't worry about the inheritance you've been left. Just make sure you leave one. If you're a person of faith here tonight, you have an obligation to leave it. If you don't have any children, volunteer in kids' church. Teach a scripture class. Pass on what you have received to the next generation. Make sure that you leave it behind. Because personal discipleship leaves a godly inheritance like Eunice, like Lois, and an unbelieving partner is no excuse to not leave something because we see here, we don't know whether Eunice's um, husband was a believer or not. We just know that he wasn't a Jew. But he's not mentioned. And neither is Lois's husband either. So we assume that the people of faith in the family were Lois and Eunice. So, so it's no excuse if you don't have a believing partner, just leave what you've been given. It's not up to you if they take it, it's just up to you to leave it. Finally, <clears throat> verse six. For this reason, I remind you to fan, lan, flan, <laughs> fan into flame the gift of God and cook flans if you must, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Timothy, it says in, in 1 Timothy, it says that, that, Timothy, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies that were given to you. So there's been prophecies given to Timothy and then there's been a laying on of hands by Paul to give him a gift, to pass on a gift. And this might be completely unfamiliar to you, but it started with Jesus where he would lay hands on people to heal them, where he would lay lay hands on people to commission them, where he would lay hands on the children as they came to him to bless them and to send them on their way. And then it was the same with the disciples as they would um, commission people, where they would pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit and people would be, uh, that it's just a, 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 something that happened in the early church and something that we still do here today. Uh, in Timothy, 1 Timothy, he's instructed not to lay hands on people too quickly. Make sure that they're faithful first in the little things. So let me 
talk to you a little bit because with our guests that we've been having, some of them prophesied. Some of them looked at certain ones of you in the eye and said, this is what I believe God's saying to you. Well, this is how we need to treat prophecy. Uh, the Bible says that prophecy must be tested. You know, so prophecy should always confirm something that already is in you. It should awaken something, sorry, not awaken, but confirm something that you're feeling already. So for example, if I prophesy again to Nathan, Nathan, you're going to be a multimillionaire, one would hope that Nathan has already felt like God has called him to make wealth. And maybe the prophecy would add another layer to that and say, and you're going to do great work in East Africa. Well, it's up to Nathan then, and he might not have had any inkling towards East Africa, to just keep his ears open about East Africa, to see what comes his way about East Africa to maybe learn something, to maybe read a book about the dumb things that people do when they get rich so that he doesn't fall into the same trap. But if it doesn't kind of confirm something that was already there, if it's like new news to us, we should parking lot it. And we should wait to see if later on down the track it makes sense. We shouldn't throw everything onto one word from one person and say, well, that's what they said, so that's what I've got to do. No, 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 no. We've been given a brain as well. So we're meant to fan into the flame the gift that's been given to us. So another example of that is Ola has a great gift in playing the piano. He often plays it silently like he is right now. And uh, as he tinkles the ivories, God has given him a gift. Yes? And it's beautiful. But he might be given that gift... And Ola has this amazing, soulful voice as well. But it's also up to him to steward that gift well. As I look at Dave and Brenda, two beautiful people who I love with all my heart, who have been given gifts of music as well and of worship in particular and encouragement. And so they haven't just, <laughs> they haven't just taken that and, and said, oh, cool, let's have some parties around at our place. And Dave said, I'll play the guitar. And Brenda's like, yeah, I'll sing. It'll be great. No, they've said, well, where can we go? Oh, okay, I can't get used here. I'll go somewhere where I will get used for that gift of music. It's up to us to steward whatever gifts we've been given. It's up to us to um, actually build capacity into the gifting that we've been given. If you aren't seeing the fruit of the gift that you believe that God's given to you yet, then you should be faithful to steward that well and to actually build capacity in there. I want to ask a question. Can everyone here raise your hand who feels like they have, they're doing everything to live up to their potential in Jesus Christ. Everything that they believe is on their life that God's given them, that they're doing absolutely everything to live up to that potential. I can't even put my hand up, right? There's no one in the room that's putting their hand up. We all feel like we should be doing something more. And I would suggest that apart from that little voice that says you're not enough and you're not good enough, that's something to be silenced. We probably could. We could probably take discipleship seriously because there's his part and there's our part there's his part and there's our part we need to own our part I'm going to read through these last couple of verses starting at verse 7 for God did not give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power of love and of self-discipline some people suggest that this is actually because of Timothy's temperament that he had a tendency towards timidity. Others say that he had to be told this because he was a young man. And uh, Paul writes to him and says, don't let people despise you because you're young, like rise up in confidence and still teach. But regardless, God did not give us that spirit of timidity, but he gave us a spirit of power. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead 
lives in us. He gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline that says, God, I'm going to believe what you say about me more than I believe my own thoughts about me. I'm going to submit my thoughts to the thoughts that you think about me. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. That's our part. Or ashamed of me, his prisoner. That's our part. Everything in green is our part. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's our part. By the power of God. That's his part. He has saved us. And He has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. So the grace was given us in Jesus before time even began, but now we saw it physically revealed through our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. All of the blue is His part. And of this gospel, I was appointed. He appoints a herald and an apostle and a teacher. We need to outwork our calling. And Paul says, that's why I'm suffering as I am. It's ours to suffer if we need to. Yet there is no cause for this shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. And we'll hear a bit more about that next week. Discipleship, it's personal. And so tonight I'm going to pray and uh, we're going to sing and then we're going to go. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that every single one of us Lord, would realise who we're praying to right now. God, that we're not praying to the air. This isn't just a nothing moment. We're praying to the God of all creation who has called us. You haven't only saved us, Lord, but you've called us into your purpose. And Lord, I pray that we would understand the discipleship that's necessary, that we need to take that personally. Lord God, that we would put down our phones, Lord, if necessary, and pick up your word. Lord, that we'd put down distractions and pick up our purpose, Lord God. Lord, that we would decide that life is too short to be caught up in the everyday affairs of life and we'd keep our eyes firmly focused on you. God, that's the work that only you can do. And Lord, I pray we would respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.